Maria was the highest ranking woman in Fidel Castro's government. She was like a vice president to him. Her official assignment was director of the women's prison. She was feared, respected, and handled with kin gloves because she had the ear of Fidel at any time. When he would do his five, six, seven hour speeches on live television, he'd have her there. And when he needed to take a little rest, he'd just call her up and turn it over to her, and she'd keep it going. Nobody else did that. Only Maria. She was an avowed Marxist communist, had to be to hold her job. And that, of course, meant that she believed that there was no God. She was an atheist, as is the Communist Party. They tell their people, we are your God. We will take care of you. You don't need religion. That's a sickness, a weakness. And she believed that. She'd never seen or touched a Bible in her life. Had no use for religion. The Communist Party and the government and Fidel, her boss, were her life. She had a husband, but he was along for the ride. She had a big house given to her by the government, had a car, chauffeur, bodyguards, and uh, he benefited from all of that. But they also had one boy, one child. He was about nine years old, and the apple of her eye. In her personal life, he was the most important thing to her. And that boy got sick, progressively worse. She had the best of medical care. He, the doctors examined him. They tested everything they could. And finally, one of them had to reluctantly tell his mother, Maria, your boy has terminal cancer. It's in his bones. It's in his body. He's going to die. She never expected that. She had always been in control, well-educated, respected, feared, and now she'd heard the worst. Her son was going to die. She consulted with the doctors again, and they explained it, laid it out, and said, we just, we've done everything we can. We don't have any way to treat this. Uh, it, it'll be fatal. In her office, unbeknownst to anybody, was a Christian employee, a little lady. Happened to be a Nazarene lady. She hadn't shared her faith with anybody because she would have been instantly fired if identified as a religious person or a, a believer. Much worse, attended a church. And so she had kept her mouth quiet and her testimony covered while she worked there. But when the office saw how distraught their boss, Maria, was and she no longer focusing on her work, only talking about her son and 
And it was sort of common knowledge within her, the office of how bad he was. The Lord prompted this little lady to go talk to Maria. And she did. And she said, Maria, you have said the doctors can't do anything for your boy. But I believe in God. In our church, we pray for healing. And God has healed many people through the prayers of our pastor and our church. Would you like for our pastor to come and pray for your son in the hospital? Wow. She was laying it all on the line. At first, Maria's you know, response, her, her professional response would have been just to fire her, get rid of her. But she was a hurting mother, and that was more important. She went home that night, didn't sleep, wrestled. She'd been taught, she believed there was no God. So who could be doing these healings? Was it witchcraft? They believed in a lot of that. Could she get her son back if they went and prayed for him? The next day, she decided it was worth her job if it came to that, to have her son. And so she called her employee into her office, closed the door, and said, uh, tell me more. Who's your pastor? Where's your church? How do I get a hold of him? And she called the pastor, Nazarene pastor, and said, uh, I have a sick son. I understand from one of your members that uh, you pray for the sick. Would you be able to go and pray for my son? Wow. pastor knew who she was. What if God didn't heal him? Well, you know, sometimes we take a risk for God, but he does not fail us. They arranged the time. The pastor and his church went to prayer. They fasted. They prayed for three days. And two of his prayer warriors went with him to the hospital. Maria was there, of course. And uh, he simply anointed the boy and they prayed for him. In the name of Jesus, Lord, will you heal this son, this boy? It wasn't immediate. It wasn't a jump out of the bed and head for home. But he turned a corner, and the doctors noticed daily progress. And in about three weeks, that boy was out of bed and walked out of the hospital. God had healed him. Now Maria had to face another decision. What did you do with this information, with this evidence? There was her son healed back in her arms. But she'd been taught there is no God, that that's foolishness. It's a weakness to believe in God, believe in the party, the Communist Party. And she wrestled again all night. 
intelligent, well-educated woman, and here was the evidence. Where was Costro's evidence that there was no God? They had no evidence. But here was evidence that there is a God, and he cares. And so the next morning, she walked into Fidel's office and laid it on the line and said, I am resigning, and here's why. I've discovered there is a God, and he has healed my son, and I can no longer continue working for you. He didn't hit her. <laughs> he didn't imprison her, but he fired her on the spot. His most loyal, trusted co-worker. Fired her on the spot, took the keys for her house, right there, called up, told the guards and her driver to bring the car back. She lost it all, everything, riches to poverty. Didn't even have a suitcase of clothes. Couldn't go back to her house. She was on the street and literally had no place to go. She called the Nazarene pastor and said, um, I got a problem. <laughs> Told him what she'd done. And he said, praise God. He'll take care of you. And then she said, well, do you have a spare bedroom? <laughs> could, could my son and I come and, and live with you for a little while until I figure out what I'm going to do and how I'm going to survive financially? Uh, and besides, I, I want to learn more. I've never read a Bible. I've never seen a Bible. I've never handled one. I, I, do you have a Bible that I could read? Of course. <laughs> uh, but could I attend your services? Could, could, could I learn more about what this is all about? Make that story shorter. They invited her in. She lived with them for about three months. She read the Bible through entirely. She, every night around the table, they talked religion, and uh, she just soaking it up, picking it up, making sense out of it, attended all the services. And let me just shorten the story by saying, God took this well-trained, well-equipped, much-experienced, administrative-experienced woman, called her to preach. She went and lived at our seminary with her son, with her, for three years while she took the ministerial training courses, graduated, was ordained, then they had to get, find a church for her where it would be safe for her to be. Not everybody was pleased with what she had done. They felt that her life could be at risk. So our district superintendent, had a vacancy on the far end of the island, way down by Guantanamo, and that's 700 miles away. <laughs> and so they assigned her that church. <laughs> it was down near the south coast of Cuba, near, near, the, near the beach. It was a coastal town, small wooden church, not much attendance, frankly. And, um, but she went down there and said, sure, I'll go. And she began to tell her story, and the word got out in the community, Maria! is our pastor. Come hear her. 
hear what God is doing, has done for her. And she used her testimony and her, by that point, utter faith that God could do anything. That nothing was impossible for God. And she preached that. Filled up the church, <laughs> overflowing. And she said, well, you know, we need a bigger church. We need a bigger building. Well, they, they hadn't built to lot line. There was room around the sides of the church to knock the walls out and expand it. And so she said, well, we're, we're going to tear down this old building and we'll make the biggest we can. We'll go right out to the lot line. I mean, there's zoning, but don't worry about that. Just put it on our lot line. And they said, well, where are we going to get the money to build? I said, well, that's, that's God's problem. He can do anything. He'll provide the money. Okay, pastor, if you say so. So the men got their picks and shovels and they marked it out and started digging. Digging the trenches to put in the cement base for the walls. And every now and then they'd hit a stone, clunk, clunk, and have to dig it out. But one of those times, it wasn't clunk. It was clank. And clank meant metal instead of a stone. And they dug it out, and lo and behold, it was a metal box, a treasure box from the pirate days of Columbus. They opened that box, and there was the gold. She knew that the government claimed any treasure found on the island. She knew that. But that, she said, this is God's answer. You ask me how we're going to fund our church? Here it is, in the box. And so she arranged to sell it quietly and privately. And they had the money, built their church, and filled it up. Well, after it appeared that it was safe enough to uh, bring her back towards Havana, the district elected her as their district missions president. I saw her at the front of an NMI, con of, uh, NMI convention as part of the district assembly leading the NMI convention. I said, who's that woman? That's Maria. What? That's Maria. I mean, she was as Nazarene and as religious as, 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 as she spent her whole life doing it. <laughs> and the next time I saw her, she'd been elected the president of our seminary. And her son prepared for the ministry as well. From Fidel's right hand to the president of our seminary, training other pastors, instilling her faith, her certainty that God can do anything, will do anything. What an impact she had. Well, I'm here to tell you, I believe, not just her story, I learned that from our district superintendent. When I asked him, who's that woman out front? <laughs> I'd never seen her before. And he told me. But that stayed with me. If God can do that kind of a reversal, not only to save her soul, 
and the life of her son, but to impact the church and its growth and its ministerial training program the way that she did. He can literally do anything. Let me tell you quickly, a few years later, I was appointed <coughs> by General Superintendent Jess Mittendorf to be the person that would arrange for work and witness teams to go to Cuba. That was in January 2012. Uh, when I got that assignment verbally from him in person, uh, it was legal, had been legal for about eight months, uh, but our church hadn't yet started to work on it. And so I began promoting it. He began promoting it as general superintendent in all of his district assemblies he went to. He announced, you can now go to Cuba. What? It never been possible to go to Cuba. Never been a working witness team to Cuba in almost 60 years, never. And I was supposed to arrange for new teams to start going to Cuba. Well, let me summarize and say that in four years before I retired, I had 75 teams, 1,000 people came to Cuba, 2,000 suitcases, not one lost, not one thing taken. Out of the 1,000 people, nobody left behind. <laughs> nobody left behind in a hospital. <laughs> nobody left behind in jail. <laughs> Everybody came home. <laughs> And the only accidents and injuries that we had were two dudes who were told to wear boots because they were doing framing and, and boards with nails in them, and they wore tennis shoes, and they put a nail through the tennis shoe into their foot. And we took them to the hospital and got them cleaned up, and they went home. What I discovered as we started taking teams down there in 2012 was that there was nothing to work with. There were no tools. They hadn't done any repairs to their churches. Those 18 churches that, they, that my father had purchased as the director back in the 1940s and 50s were still there and hadn't had repairs in 60 years. They were shabby. They needed work. The teams wanted to do it, but there was nothing to work with. So we put together a container of uh, wheelbarrows and tool, hand tools and uh, paint, uh, five-gallon buckets of paint, several pallets of it. Ladders, there were no ladders for sale in Cuba. Sheet, uh, plywood, no plywood for sale in Cuba. And uh, anyway, we put a great container of tools and equipment, um, as well as crisis care kits and office furniture even, uh, sewing machines, uh, a lot of great things that could help the ministry and help the teams. Now, no container had ever been sent to Cuba from the Nazarene Church in America. Canada had been sending containers right along, and no problem. Be released in two or three weeks from after it got there, and no problem. Matter of fact, in one of the containers, they even sent a brand new car, a Hyundai four-door sedan for the district superintendent to use. Covered it up with bags of clothing <laughs> to fill the rest of the space. But we had never sent a container from the United States. That was the first. So we weren't quite sure how the Cuban government would treat it or receive it or what would happen. Um, we filled it up, shipped it off just before Christmas of 2013, arrived in Havana the first week of January, and um, the shipping company gave our office a copy of the documents of when it had arrived and the number on the container and all the information you need. And a couple of weeks later, uh, after the holidays, 
our district superintendent went down to the government office uh, of customs and uh, asked, uh, when will we receive our container? And he had the paperwork on it. And the customs official that he spoke with uh, opened his drawer and went through some papers and, and came back and said, um, we don't have a container for you. There's no container here for you. Well, the shipping company says they delivered it on such and such a date. He said, well, we don't have any paperwork on it. We don't have any container for you. End of discussion. Whoa. Came back to home, called me, told me about it. And he said, well, let's pray. Let's, let's hope that this is just a mix-up. A couple weeks later, he went back again and again and again for two months. Same story every time. There is no container. We have no paperwork. He finally called me and said, Bob, I don't know what's going on. This is our first container from the United States. Uh, you went through all the due process of sending the inventory ahead of time, having it approved. They knew what was in it. They approved everything that was in it. We shouldn't have had any problems, but I don't know what's happening. But all we can do is pray. I hope we haven't lost this container. Well, several more months went by. And on June 26th, 2014. A team of 27 people arrived on a Saturday afternoon, and uh, we received them at the airport, as we always do, and, and uh, had the church bus, and they loaded on, loaded all the luggage on, and we were heading for the hotel, Hotel Mariposa. Maybe some of you have been there. It's uh, right near our seminary, a couple of miles from the seminary, and uh, that's where we kept the teams. And uh, we were, everybody was happy. We arrived in Cuba, and all the luggage was there, and and uh, check in the hotel and have dinner and then hit the job tomorrow, the next morning. And uh, about uh, two blocks from the hotel, there's a big roundabout. Five roads come in to a big circle. And there's usually a little traffic jam as people work their way around and come in one and go out the other, you know. I'm sitting up front with the driver and uh, chatting with him. Uh, and as we pulled up to that circle, uh, we all slowed down for the traffic. And right in front of us, it was about 4.35 o'clock in the afternoon, right in front of us was a big semi with a 40-foot container on top of it. And, you know, that's strange. This is Saturday evening. Only the government moves containers. There's no private movement of containers. Government's closed on weekends. Whatever warehouse they're going to take that to is closed. Why is that container out on the road at 5 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon? Huh. You don't think it's ours? Nah, no. Nah. We would have heard. You know, they would have told us. Well, Renato, just in case, follow him. Follow him. The seminary is on a mile down the road. If he doesn't stop there... We'll turn around and come back to the hotel. So he went around the circle. We pulled him behind him, pulled around the circle, and he pulled away, and we sat in his, in his smoke and followed him down the road. And lo and behold, when he pulled up to the arches of the entryway of our seminary, they're not golden, they're blue, his left turn signal came on. And I said to the crowd on the bus, that's our container. 
They're delivering it Saturday evening when nobody is there at the seminary. One guard. All students and faculty are out in ministry for the weekend. No way that container can be unloaded tonight. We followed him in. They went all the way back to the warehouse. Backed up to the door. Two uniformed officers got out of the passenger side of the truck. They were the customs officials in uniform, had a clipboard, had a manifesto, had the paperwork that didn't exist. And uh, I got off the bus, I told the people, I said, guys, I don't know what's going to happen. Pray, please pray. Let's, let's, let's see what God is doing here. Pray for, pray for me as I go talk to him. And I uh, walked up and he said, is this the Nazarene Seminary? Yes, sir. You found it. <laughs> Um, we have a container for you. Uh, where, do we, where, where do we unload it? Where, do you, where, are you, where are you going to unload it? He said, in that warehouse right there. And then he said, well, you have one hour. In an hour, we pull out of here. If you can't unload in an hour, we shut the door and we leave. And they didn't expect anybody to be there except one guard. Their plan was that that container would leave basically intact, unopened, with all of our goods in it, and it would disappear over the weekend. And an empty truck would show up at the dock Monday morning. But God intervened. There were 27 team members sitting on that bus. I went back and I said, guys, thanks for praying. Now let's go to work. We have to unload this container in one hour. They said, let's go. They lined up like ants, <laughs> two rows on the back of that container, opened the doors, and started handing off the stuff. No pallets, no pallet jacks, piece by piece. Everything came off. Everybody working at top speed. We have one hour. And in one hour, it was empty. They did it. Those two uniformed officers stood there and watched this process. Their faces fell. <laughs> Their retirement for life was disappearing into the Nazarene warehouse. <laughs> when we were done, the driver closed the doors, and I walked over to the officer with the clipboard and said, we're done. He said, yeah, I see. <laughs> He said, well, here, sign here. So I signed it, and he gave me a copy of it. He said, I have a question for you. How did you know we were coming today so you could have all these people here? And I said, I, you know, I'm playing it cool, right? Uh, Sir, we didn't know. Nobody told us. But God knew. And God arranged for this group to be here this afternoon. Now, I'm talking to the two atheists, employees of the government. They don't believe in God, but I'm telling them God provided the manpower to empty this container. He just shook his head, turned around, they got in, they left. I couldn't sleep that night. I was reprocessing everything that had happened. 
And I was thinking, what if we hadn't had the team today? What if they had come earlier or later and we wouldn't have been at the circle when the truck went around? We wouldn't have known that they were at the seminary. They would have pulled in, saw nobody there, pulled right back out again. Two minutes, they'd be gone. That was their plan. What if we had arrived at the circle 20 seconds later than when we did? And we didn't see the truck. It, it would be going down the other spoke away from the circle. And we'd be pulling up. To, the hotel's right down there, guys. And we would have lost it. But in God's power to do the impossible, and that's what we're talking about today on Faith Promise Day, God's ability to do the impossible, he had the team there, he worked out the precise timing for us to be behind that truck when it pulled up to the circle, prodded me to follow it, and we saved the day and the container. To God be the glory. And folks, that's what it's about. Glory to God for doing the impossible. And whether it's saving our souls or giving us the funding to share Jesus in the rest of the world beyond the 164 countries we're already in, he's ready to do the impossible through you and through me that the Great Commission can be accomplished in our day. May God bless you.